0: You'll find that on page 575 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And uh, as always, if you do not have a copy of God's Word, we invite you to take that Bible in the Pew Rack, that that might be your very own. So Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, we started last week an Advent series considering what many have called the fifth gospel, the book of Isaiah. As we consider these wonderful prophecies in which Isaiah foretold some 600 years Before Christ came upon this earth, I look forward to this morning considering this wonderful passage. And so, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 Hear now the word of God. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf, and the lion, and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the whole of the cobra, and the wean child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him the nations shall inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Our Father, we're so thankful for your word even now. That we can come and, and consider it and delight in it, delight in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so will you, in your great kindness to us by your Spirit, even fill us now. That we might see with fresh eyes who our Messiah is and what he has come and what he will come to accomplish. That we might find our delight in him. That we too, as is told of him, might delight in the fear of the Lord. And so help us. Draw us to you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you may not be aware, um, but it is election season. I don't know if you've caught on to this, but uh, we are going to elect a new president in 11 months from now. So all that you've been enjoying for the last 11 months, you're going to get that for another year or so as these men and women campaign and hold rallies and make speeches and offer promises and everybody gets all rather excited at this time of year. It kind of reminds me of the hope we had uh, when our current president was elected. A great deal of hope surrounded His uh, administration and his, of course, message was a message of hope. He wrote a book called The Audacity of Hope. Now, you may not have hoped, but uh, it's true that many people did hope when he was elected. In fact, if you will remember, it was in 2008 when he was receiving the nomination for the Democratic Party to be their nominee to president. They had to move his speech to an arena where 85,000 people came to hear him. You remember, as a candidate, he traveled to Berlin And 200,000 Germans lined the street to see this candidate for president. Perhaps you'll remember when he was inaugurated in 2009, one million people descended upon Washington to celebrate his inauguration. He inspired this incredible degree of passion and hope. In fact, consider the words of Ezra Klein who wrote in the Washington Post in 2008. Obama's finest speeches do not excite. They do not inform. They don't re- even really inspire. They elevate. They immerse you in a grander moment as if history has stopped flowing passively by and just for an instant contracted around you, made you aware of its presence and your role in it. He is not the word made flesh, but the triumph over The triumph of word over flesh. Or consider one of the United States Congressmen. As he said, what Barack Obama has accomplished is the single most extraordinary event that has occurred in the 232 years of the nation's political history. The event itself is so extraordinary that another chapter could be added to the Bible to chronicle its significance. Or consider Micah Tillman. Who lectures in philosophy at the Catholic University of America who said Barack Obama is the philosopher king we have been looking for for the past 2,400 years. He won't just heal our souls. He won't just bring the heavenly kingdom dreamt of in Christianity to earth. He will heal the earth itself. Or consider Pastor Larry Junginer. No one saw him coming. And Christians believe God comes at us from strange angles and places we don't expect, like Jesus being born in a manger. In fact, even Simon & Schuster, the publisher of some renown, published a book entitled in 2008 about Barack Obama, entitled, The Son of Promise, The Child of Hope. Now, this sermon is not about the president, so don't freak out. All right, Don't get all worked up. I rarely talk politics in the pulpit. And usually when I do, most of you don't like to hear it. So we're not going to do that this morning. But what I find interesting to me, what I find fascinating, that though these quotes and others, is troubling to us. And yet I think they're, they're very understandable. Now, we don't like the quotes. We don't like these ideas being attributed to him. But I wonder if, if the reason that they are is that there is something in us. Some desire, some longing that perhaps God has placed in us that you and I and all of humanity long for the righteous society led by a righteous government, guided by a righteous man. And every four or eight years, America seems to place its hope in the next individual who's going to try. And it's been my experience that everyone fails. No matter what party they come from. For instance, Herbert Hoover promised a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. He said in 1928 he himself through his administration would eradicate poverty. 1929 brought the Great Depression. Or consider the candidate FDR 1932 promised when campaigning for president the presidency he would maintain balanced budgets and decrease government spending by 25%. He didn't either. Did the opposite of both. Or consider Lyndon Johnson, as he ran as a candidate for the president, who had declared he would win the war on poverty through his great society. Most have considered his presidency and have said he fought a war against poverty and poverty won. Or consider Richard Nixon, who as a candidate for president declared as soon as he is in office, he would remove the American troops from our engagement in the Vietnam War. Or consider George Herbert Walker Bush who told the nation to read his lips, no new taxes, simply to raise taxes the following year. My point is that governments will fail us and that rulers continue to fail us and yet we still hope. We still have a yearning in us for this righteous and this wise leader to come and and to rule over us. And I want to tell you this morning, from the authority of God's Word, He is coming. He won't be on the ballot next fall, but He is coming. Isaiah, the prophet of God, told us that an anointed ruler, guided by the Spirit of God, who will reign in perfect justice and righteousness and will even transform the world itself. And so let's consider this morning. This anointed ruler as foretold 2,700 years ago by the prophet Isaiah. He begins by announcing his qualifications to rule. So why is he qualified? Well, he's qualified because he is the promised king as we see in verse 11. uh, Excuse me, verse 1 of chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And so Isaiah begins with this, I think, powerful imagery and, and he begins with a stump, right? a, a downed tree, a, a picture of death or destruction. If you were here last time, you, you perhaps remember that I, Isaiah prophesied in a period of great trouble in the nation of Israel. That looming on the horizon was this mighty empire called Assyria. An empire thirsty for conquest and land and resources. And had uh, had its eyes on Jerusalem. And by the way, all of this, this nation of Assyria rising up, was according to the plan of God. In fact, in chapter 10 of Isaiah, uh, Assyria, this unstoppable nation, is called, in verse 5, the rod of God's anger. Or in verse 15 of chapter 10, Assyria is called the axe In God's hand. And God would swing that axe. That axe called Assyria. Leaving a vast forest of of nothing but jagged stumps. In fact, this is the picture that we get when chapter 10 ends. Look in verse 34 of chapter 10. He says, he will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe. And Lebanon, the, the cedars of Lebanon, if you will, will fall by the majestic one. And so Isaiah closes chapter 10 with this vision of a, of a vast field of stumps with no branch waving in the wind, no tree nesting in the treetops, no, no sound, no movement, no life. Just death. But then we get to chapter 11 and, and wait. We see something, don't we? A little green shoot emerges from a stump and isaiah says it grows into a branch and that branch bears fruit in fact enough fruit to feed the world in fact uh, the, uh, he will actually change the world and by the way of all the stumps in which the shoot emerges the, this branch the shoot comes from none other than the stump of jesse the father of david just as god had promised God had told David that his son would rule forever, bringing blessings to the world. And Isaiah has beginning to to tell us and teach us about what that would be like, the shoot coming from the stump of David. But there's a problem, is that the line of David is dead. Or at least it's dying when Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 6 that famous chapter in the book of Isaiah it begins in verse 1 saying in the king in the year that king Uzziah died Uzziah descendant of David a holy and godly man had died his son Ahaz had now taken to the throne perhaps becoming one of the most wicked and pagan kings of all of Judah worshipping every god out there except the one true god even offering his own children unto the white hot arms of the pagan god Molech in child sacrifice he was a terrible and evil man and god says i'm going to bring judgment upon this nation i'm going to i'm going to end if you will the 20 generations of david's lineage ruling in jerusalem and he did off to Babylon and they go and no king would sit upon david's throne and centuries would pass century after century and other empires would rise it would, after Babylon, first Syria, then Babylon, then Persia, then, then Greece, then Rome. But Israel never came back to its glory. He never had a, a, a king back upon his throne. In fact, David's house was just a, a memory of days gone by. I mean, imagine 500 years. You even understand what that'd be like. Oh, yeah, David's last, his last descendant last reigned 500 years ago. And, and, and you think David, the house of David, that's just, a, that's just an old stump decaying in the backyard that reminded us that it once carried a mighty tree. Until one day, an angel appeared to a virgin in a little village called Nazareth. And he said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And the Lord our God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And nine months later, in a stable in Bethlehem, the city of David, a little shoot emerges from the stump of Jesse. The king is coming, the king in which God had sworn, the promised king had come. You see, he is the promised one. But he's also, according to Isaiah 11, verse 2, the anointed one. He's not only the promised king, but an anointed king. Look at this anointing. Uh, the Bible says, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He would be a king anointed, not with oil like all the rest, but anointed with the spirit of God himself. In fact, this this Jesus grew up, and when he was 30 years old, he walked into the waters to be baptized by John the prophet. And the Bible tells us when Jesus had been baptized, the heavens were open, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. That Spirit coming and anointing King Jesus. And while he is still dripping wet with the waters of the Jordan, it is that same Spirit that leads him out to the desert. For the Bible tells us Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. It is that Spirit who enabled him to to overcome the temptations of 40 days. This assault by the devil himself. And when it was done, it was the Spirit that led him out. Jesus returned, the Bible tells us, from the wilderness in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. He's anointed with the Spirit of God. Equipped, guided, led by God's Spirit. In fact, Isaiah tells us what kind of Spirit. what, What would it be like? He says it was a Spirit of wisdom and understanding. You see, Jesus had an ancestor named Solomon who was so daunted by the idea of taking his father David's throne that he asked God for wisdom that he might rule rightly. God was so pleased with that request and he gave Solomon a greater wisdom than anyone who had come before him. In fact, his wisdom was so great that people would travel from all over the world, vast distances, just to come and talk to Solomon the Bible tells us they would come and and listen to him on matters of religion and ethics and science and even agriculture. I mean Solomon had this amazing amount of, of wisdom. And the Bible in fact tells us in Matthew 12, the queen of Sheba came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. But Matthew goes on, but behold, something or someone greater than Solomon is here. He has a spirit of wisdom and understanding. Isaiah tells us the spirit of counsel and might. That is, He's not only wise, He's able to impart that wisdom to you. He can give you counsel and guidance. And coupled with that counsel is His unstoppable and unparalleled strength and might. He has the spirit of the of the knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Right? He knew the Lord unlike anyone who had ever known Him. And therefore, He feared the Lord. He's anointed with this spirit, wisdom, and understanding, counsel, and my knowledge and fear of the Lord. That's one I'll vote for. I'll vote for this one. This king who is uniquely qualified to rule this world. Isaiah begins with his qualifications, but continues on to describe the nature of his rule. He begins by saying when he rules, he will rule with perfect justice. Look at verse 3. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. You see, what Isaiah is telling us here is that he won't be biased by the wealthy and the influential against the poor and the oppressed. He's not going to make decisions based upon their impact to his future political aspirations. right? He's going to, to rule blindly, if you will. He won't be influenced this way or that way by, by how his rulings look or what people think resulting in, in these great miscarriages of justice that we see happening over and over again by the rulers who rule us in our days and are often ruled by how it will impact them. I remember when uh, President Clinton was stepping down from office, and I don't know if you remember all the pardons he gave, Jimmy Carter called them disgraceful, he called it pardon gate is what we called it. In fact, President Clinton pardoned a man named Mark Rich, who happened, interesting name, Mark Rich, he happened to be a billionaire and a fugitive, and living in Switzerland uh, on the FBI's most wanted list as one of the largest tax evaders in US history, he received a full pardon by the outgoing president. With no explanation as to why. It is interesting that Mark Rich's ex wife Denise gave millions of dollars to President Bill Clinton's presidential library. And we see this happening. I mean, we could take, we go example after example after example of these miscarriages of justice. Isaiah says, There's one coming who will not be biased in favor of the rich and influential. Rather, he's gonna do what is right and he's gonna do what is just. In fact, Jesus takes this passage when he's on this earth, and in John 7, he, he's the, he says he applies it to us, he says, "Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment." Now I find that interesting because Jesus takes a prophecy that describes who he will be and he tells it to us as to how we should be he says, don't judge by appearances don't but judge rather with the right judgment. Jesus is calling us just like He was to be people committed to truth and righteousness in all of our dealings. To not mislead people in order to get ahead. To not compromise our values and our convictions to win favor with influential people. To be people of complete righteousness. To let our word be our word and our name be our name. And we are to be like Christ being righteous as he is righteous in all his dealings, ju- ruling with perfect justice. In fact, this, I think about the not being influenced by the opinions of others. I'm not sure many of us have arrived at that place. Where people's criticisms don't buffet us. Or we want people to think highly of us. And Christ is just going to rule completely blind to those opinions. And I think Isaiah tells us how he's able to do that. If you look at the beginning of verse 3... As Isaiah introduced these ideas, it says, And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Right? I just think that's a wonderful passage. Because it does not say that Jesus fears the Lord, though he does. But he says he delights to fear the Lord. In other words, his joy is to be in awe of God. He delights to tremble at the prospect of dishonoring God. And therefore, human opinions do not intimidate him, certainly, nor do they even entice him. He's not swayed by them at all. For he delights not in the fear of man, but the fear of God. Now my question for you, Christian, when we think about this, is is what do you fear? What do you delight to fear even? Do you fear what people think about you? Are you buffeted by criticism? Are you trying to position yourself to win approval and praise? Do you want to be free from that need? Free from the need of human approval? To be free to be radically truthful? I would encourage you to be like Jesus and find your joy in fearing God. And because He does, He will rule with justice and the, the poor will find justice with Him. But so will the wicked. See, not only rule with perfect justice, but he will rule with powerful holiness. Read on with me in verse 4. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. You see, this king is going to strike the earth and slay those who refuse his grace. He's a good king. He's a holy king, and he's going to rule a powerful holiness. In fact, when Jesus walked this earth, we saw glimpses of his this holy fury, didn't we? When he withered the fig tree or denounced the Pharisees or cleared the temple with a whip in his hand, the Bible tells us he's going to return as a consuming fire to destroy his enemies. Paul's going to take this very passage in Isaiah 11 and quote it to describe the return of Jesus in 2 Thessalonians saying in chapter 2, Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. And so what this tells us, by the way, is that, that this prophecy, like most Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, include prophecies about his first coming and his second coming... With no indication that there's a gap between them. No indication that there's a time difference in between them. And so Isaiah is prophesying about both. That some of it has been fulfilled in His first coming. Some of it will be fulfilled in His second coming. And clearly this this powerful holiness, it, we are waiting for Christ to come and to fulfill it. In fact, we, we, we actually see God occasionally do this against the wicked. I mentioned that, that Israel at this time when Isaiah was written is being... Um, harassed by Assyria. Assyria would eventually destroy the, the northern kingdom, Israel. And then they would come, even after that, and they would encircle, they would siege the, the, uh, Jerusalem, the capital of Judah. And I just want to show you uh, that siege. It's found in Isaiah 11. Turn over to Isaiah 11, verse 36. I think this is a powerful picture of the holiness of God, the power of God. And it's in Isaiah chapter 36 that we see... Um, Assyria come to Jerusalem with 185,000 soldiers. They circle the city. By the way, Judah has no army to speak of. They have no refuge, so they hide within their walls. And with these almost 200,000 soldiers around the city, the field commander of the armies of the Assyrians begins to taunt the soldiers who stand upon Jerusalem's walls. Look in verse 4 of Isaiah 36. And Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are a strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? And this taunt continues throughout this entire chapter. Just pick it up in verse 18. As we see him perhaps going one step too too far in his mocking. He says there in verse 18, Beware, lest Hezekiah mislead you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpod? Where are the gods of Sepharim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? And I don't know if you get the feeling, but I, I, it's almost, in my mind, he's crossed the line now, right? He probably shouldn't have said that last part. And you can almost see the eyes of heaven staring down upon this tiny man with a combination of amusement and fury. Hezekiah knows by the way of his dire situation and he has one recourse and it is a good one. It is to flee to God. We pick up the story in chapter 37. Hezekiah praying to God in verse 15. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, You are the God, You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, Save us from His hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know You alone are Lord. That's a good prayer, by the way. God is evidently very pleased with this for we see His response is immediate and terrifying. Consider verse 36 of Isaiah 37 when the Bible tells us, And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down... A hundred and eighty-five thousand in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. My friends, this is a glimpse of what the Lord Jesus Christ will do to the wicked when he returns. He is coming with powerful holiness. He will strike the the, the, the earth, the wicked, with the rod of his mouth. He will kill the wicked with his breath, those who refuse to come to him in faith. He is powerful. His power is unparalleled. In fact, it was Lord Byron who, in, in reading this passage in Isaiah that we just considered, wrote a poem. He entitled it The Destruction of Sennacherib. Byron wrote, The Assyrians came down like a wolf on the fold, and his cohorts were gleaming in purple and gold. And the sheen of their spears was like the stars on the sea when the blue waves roll nightly on deep Galilee. Like the leaves of the forest when summer is green, that host with their banners and sunset were seen. Like the leaves of the forest when autumn hath blown, that host on the morrow laid withered and strown. For the angel of death spread his wings on the blast and breathed in the face of his foe as he passed. And the eyes of the sleepers waxed deadly and chill and their hearts but once heaved and forever grew still. And there lay the steed with his nostrils all wide but through it there rolled not a breath of his pride and the foam of his gasping lay white on the turf and cold as the spray of the rock-beaten surf. And there lay the rider distorted and pale with the dew on his brow and the rust on his mail. And the tents were all silent, the banners alone, the lances unlifted, the trumpets unblown. And the windows of Asher are loud in their wail, well, And the idols are broke in the temples of Baal. And the might of the gentle, Gentile unsmote by the sword hath melted like snow in the glance of the Lord. He's coming in power holiness and he will exercise that power with unparalleled righteousness consider lastly on the nature of his rule he will rule with perpetual righteousness verse 5 of our text in isaiah 11 righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins in other words, there was not a moment in which he was not faithful to God. There was not a moment in which he was not he had a single unrighteous thought. Not not one, not just for a moment. In fact, this word belt literally can be translated undergarments. It's almost a picture if you strip everything away from him, what do you find at his core but faithfulness? and righteousness. And this is what He taught us as He walked upon this earth. He said, For you and I to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto us. Do you want to know what He did while He walked upon this earth? you want to know what He thought when He rolled out of bed on Monday morning? He said, Today, I am going to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And He did it all day long. And then Tuesday morning when his feet hit the ground, he says, I'm going to today seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, being completely perfect and righteous throughout his life. And by the way, that's essential, Christian, for your salvation it's essential that that He be perfectly righteous because you and I are not simply just saved by His death. We are saved by His perfect life. How else could He bear our sins if He had sins of His own to bear? How else can He give us His righteousness if He has none of His own to give? In fact, if you and I could go back 2,000 years ago to see the life of Jesus, you and I would come to Him and we would plead with Him, please obey God perfectly. Please, never sin. You're our only hope. It's essential for our salvation. And he did. Perfectly. Jesus said, my meat and my drink is to do the will of my Father. That's my substance. That's why I'm here. He is faithful and righteous. He is just and holy. How foolish, therefore, is it to resist one like this? How foolish is it, how sinful is it to say, you're not worthy of my trust? There's none like Him. How how idiotic is it to say, I will rule myself and not have you rule me. There's none like Him, my brothers and sisters. There never will be. There never has been. And I would encourage you, in fact, I would exhort you that it is the essence of joy to yield your life to Christ. As we consider the nature of His rule, Isaiah moves on, and even more extraordinarily, he talks about the impact of His rule Look at verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the wean child shall put on put his hand on the adder's den. You see, he's, he's just not going to create a just society. He's It's the cessation of hostility with him. This is nothing less than a recreation. When he comes again, he's going to bring with him a new earth. We're going to finally experience creation like it was meant to be. I was ta- uh, teaching my, my family this passage last night around the dinner table and, and one of my kids, I don't remember what it says, got real excited at this part and they said, I'm going to ride a cheetah. And this time and and they 're pretty pumped up about that opportunity to get on the back of a cheetah and go as fast as they can i mean God said he 's going to creation 's going to be like it was supposed to be, all this hostility, all this suffering, all, all the disease, all the death, all the danger it 's just going to be gone forever. A number of months ago, I was preparing to go backpacking in, in northern uh, Montana. And, and I learned in my preparation that northern Montana, this particular section of Montana, has the highest density of grizzly bears than anywhere else, at least in the lower 48 uh, states. And when I go backpacking, generally I'm, I'm used to being the, the alpha predator, if you will. I'm used to kind of being in charge of the animals. But you're not in charge of a grizzly bear. Um, they're in charge. And they may look at you and think, you look like food to me. Um, and so I was thinking, okay, how, how do you get ready for this? I mean, you're going to be 15 miles from the nearest road or, or, or house or for the nearest help. You're a day away from anything on the side of a mountain in the middle of this range. And, and I began to research. Well, how, what do you do if a grizzly bear attacks you? And I actually came across a s- survey, which I found fascinating. It is the, uh, a survey of backpackers of the worst way to die, backpacking. Now, now I, I didn't share this survey with my wife before I went. but. Um, The worst way to die, backpacking, is by a bear attack. 19% evidently a backpacker say that's the way I don't want to go. Number 2 is swarmed by bees, which has actually happened to me in the backcountry. Drowning, number 3, 15%. Dehydration, 14%. Freezing, 10%. Falling, 7%. Avalanche, 7%. Mountain lion attack, 6%. Snake bite, 6%. Spider bite, 6%. And then I guess only 1% think the lightning strike is the worst way to die. I didn't even realize there's this many ways to die in the (laughs) backcountry. It's a dangerous world. It's a place of danger. We can't even, it's hard to even let your kids watch nature shows because you can't watch them for five minutes without one animal eating another animal. Right? This is the world we live in, a world of the tooth and the claw, a world of, of violence. And Isaiah says when he returns, you need to understand that wolves and leopards and lions and bears are going to hang out together with lambs and goats and calves and cows. And, and even a baby is going to play in the nest Of deadly snakes. See, he's coming to bring harmony to this world of conflict. He's coming to bring peace in a place of suffering. Humanity finally will be united, will be one. Creation will flourish. And and we will never hurt one another again. All of it's going to be changed. And what will it be like to work the field then? or create music then, or play baseball then, or explore a mountain in a place where there is no danger, there is no hurting, there is no harm, and do it all to His glory. He is the Prince of Peace. He has come to bring peace between us, and peace peace between nations, and peace within nature, and ultimately peace between mankind and God. In fact, Isaiah summarizes what he will do, the impact of his rule in verse 9, when he says, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain... For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You see, what, he, what he's saying is all forces of hurt will be gone forever. And, and then he tells us how. Because the whole earth, every inch of it, is going to be covered with the knowledge of God. It, it's going to be everywhere. You see that, that word for? No hurting. Why? Because the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Mike, how do the waters cover the sea? The waters cover every part of the sea. You can't find sea without water. And the knowledge of the Lord is going to find every place. The mountain of the Lord will be every inch of the creation. And all creation is going to act according to the knowledge of God. It's all going to submit to the plan of God and uh, the uh, the way in which God originally wanted it to be created. It will be an incredible world. It will be joy to the world, won't it? No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow. How far? As far as the curse is found. That's what He will do. My brothers and sisters, don't you long for that day? Don't don't your heart beat fast when you think about it? Dad's no longer yelling at kids. Car accidents no longer robbing us of loved ones too soon. Earthquakes no longer leveling cities. Refugees no longer fleeing for their lives. Terrorists no longer attacking holiday parties. He's coming to fix the world. This world is broken. And he alone will fix it. In fact, 700 years after these words were mentioned, there was a traveling rabbi on a boat at night in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and a storm rose up and he walked to the bow of the boat and said, Enough! Stop it! And the storm whimpered and died and the sea sat down and obeyed. And the disciples on that boat said, Who is this? I'll tell you who he is. He is the anointed ruler prophesied from old who will one day fix this world completely. And we will see no no more the effects of sin, no more signs of sin, no more signs of the curse. The only thing that will remind us of the world that we once lived in are the scars upon his hands and his feet that brought us into that world. That's what he'll do. When our current president was elected... It was said of him, generations from now, we will be able to look back and tell our children that this was the moment when we began to provide care for the sick. This was the moment when the rise of the oceans began to slow, our planet began to heal. This was the moment when we ended a war and secured our nation and restored our image as the last best hope on earth. Let me be clear with you. America never has nor ever will be the last best hope on earth. Jesus Christ is. And only Him. And there will come a time when the sick are cleansed and the planet is healed and wars are ceased. And it won't be through this president and it won't be through the one who's coming after Him. It will only be when Christ returns. And I hope, my friends, I hope you will be there. I'm going to be there. And it's not because I've earned my spot. The Bible tells us we all won't be there. In fact, Isaiah will tell us what type of people, you want to see what type of people go there? Turn to Isaiah 33. I just want to, who's going to be there? Not everyone. Isaiah 33 verse 24 tells us who will be in this kingdom, who will be in this land when the prophet says at the end of verse 24 of Isaiah 33, the people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. It's not the good people that go there. It's the forgiven people. You want to get there? You need to get forgiven of your sins. The Bible tells us there is only one way to be forgiven of your sins. And it is to bow your life in faith to Jesus Christ. Believing that He has been crucified to pay the penalty of your sin. And He has risen from the dead. And it is yielding your life to Him. Scripture tells us if you confess through your mouth that Jesus is your Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. You will be saved. That's how you get there. Well, friends, don't, don't leave this place this morning not knowing if you're going to be there. Will you not bow your, your life to Jesus? Place your faith in Him who has come to this world to, to pay the penalty of your sin. Where, where is your security? Where is your hope? It's, I, I hope it's not in the next president. And I hope it's not in your own good works. I hope it's only in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. In fact, I I read this. I get so excited. I wonder, why don't you come now? I mean, what in the world are you waiting for? I mean, is it going to get more broken? I mean, it seems like it's about as bad as it could get. Are you waiting for us to get our act together, maybe? I don't think he's waiting for either of those things. In fact, Isaiah, I think, tells us what he's waiting for. He's waiting for the nations. He longs for the nations. He wants his kingdom to be bigger. So lastly, consider with me this morning the extent of his rule. As we look in Isaiah 11.10. A wonderful passage. that gives me great hope. The prophet said, In that day the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him the nations shall inquire. And his resting place shall be glorious. You see, his rule, his kingdom, will be an international kingdom. He tells us here in verse 10 that the root of Jesse... That is a signal or a banner or a flag under which the nations will come and stand under and they will declare with one voice that He is our King. And by the way, it's happening right now. That's going on right now. In fact, Paul in Romans 15, when he said, I need to go to parts of this world that have not heard the name of Jesus. I need to go to the unreached places. He quotes Isaiah 11.10 to justify why he needs to do that. He needs to take it to the dark places, the places that don't know who Christ is. See, Christ reigns to reach the nations and, and He's doing it right now. Please don't let the, the weakness of the Western church fool you. The 20th century saw the greatest expansion of the Christian church in the in the 2000 years that it has existed. As it grows weak in Western Europe and dies in Canada and whimpers here in America, it has exploded in South America and Africa and Asia. And even now as our friend Jamie is ministering in Central Asia, it is growing by the thousands in the in the Middle East like nothing we have ever seen in 2000 years. The nations are coming. Coming to Jesus. And I, I, don't, I don't know what that means for us. God, By the way, God doesn't owe America anything. I don't know which way our country is going. I pray that we return to Him, but I don't know what He's going to do. I don't know what we're going to do, but this I do know is that while we as a church in America have any strength at all, we should use it to take Christ to the nations. We should use it to take Him not just to our neighbors, but to the places that don't even know His name. This is why I, I get so excited my friend Jamie can come and speak to you. As he, when 22 years old, took his wife and they went to a, by themselves to a little village in the middle of the Middle East just to tell people who don't, never, don't know the name of Jesus, haven't heard His name, to tell them about Jesus Christ. And people are willing to go. If, if we're not willing to go, we have to be able to send them, don't we? And right now our mission board, which at one point was the largest mission sending agency in times, is pulling people off the field because we don't have enough money to send them. I just find that ludicrous that the richest country in the world, at the richest time in the world, has hundreds of people saying, we will go to Afghanistan and Iraq and North Korea and Vietnam if you will just send us. And we say, sorry, we don't have the money. I don't get that. I really don't. I don't, I don't understand that. Something's wrong with us. That's what I understand. May God work in our church that we would have less desire for the trinkets of this world and more desire for the fame of King Jesus to the nations. It is an international kingdom. But it's more than that. It's an internal kingdom. I, I love this. This is fascinating to me. It's, look in verse 10 again. Okay, so the king is once again connected to Jesse. But you notice this time he's not called the branch of Jesse, as he was in verse 1, but the root of Jesse, here in verse 10. So in verse 1, he's the the branch of Jesse. He's the shoot from Jesse. In verse 10, he's the root or the source of Jesse. In other words, he's a descendant of Jesse, and he's the cause of Jesse. How can that be? Oh unless the baby born in Bethlehem is not simply a descendant from Jesse, he is also the eternal God who is the source of Jesse, his very root. Or as Jesus said in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 16, I am the root and the descendant of David. Right? I'm his source and I'm his offspring. I'm his father and I'm his son. I'm the beginning and I'm the end. I am the eternal God. It will be an eternal kingdom. And lastly, you note, it will be a glorious kingdom. Look at the end of verse 10 as we see that His resting place shall be glorious. Right? Judgment, salvation, recreation, finished. will enter His rest. will finally be home. And Isaiah describes that home, that rest, with one word, and it's the word glory. Glorious. Christ exalted. Nations gathered, cursed, removed, earth restored, suffering banished, peace complete. This glorious rest where every sorrow that plagues us from the past will be cast aside and every joy, both imaginable and unimaginable, will be satisfied in Jesus Christ and we will finally be home as we stand under His banner. His flag will fly in this land and it shall be glorious. In fact, our banner, the American banner, was flying when Francis Scott Key wrote the national anthem. You know the story, I trust, that he was imprisoned on board a British ship in the war of 1812 as this British ship fired its bombardments against Fort McHenry and Francis Scott Key would look out the little window from the ship, and every time a bomb would explode, he would catch a glimpse of the American flag still flying. And he would write, And the rocket's red glare, the bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. I, I love that line because I think it perfectly describes the condition that you and I are in, Christian. See, Christ's flag is flying. His banner is raised, but it is opposed. It is being attacked. The bombs are flying. But even in the midst of that attack, uh, this, this banner, which will never fall, which will never come down, is drawing people to Himself. In fact, Jesus Christ Himself would say, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to Myself. How is it that He's lifted up? It's the cross. You see, the cross is His banner. The cross is His flag. He does not win this world through intimidation or public relations or super PAC or elections. He wins it by dying love and forgiving grace. And He offers it to all who receive it. You've received it, haven't you, Christian? You know that grace which Christ has died to offer you. Merry Christmas to you. The anointed ruler has come upon this earth and has died for you and risen, and he is coming again. And you belong to him based on no effort from you, but completely by his work. Merry Christmas. I hope all of us could have a Merry Christmas, that we would know Christ as our King. Won't you come to him? Won't you place your faith in him? Our Father, we're thankful for our anointed ruler. We're thankful that he has come and that he is coming again. We're thankful that we can just get a glimpse of the future and what He will do, what He will accomplish by His great might and holiness, righteousness and faithfulness, His love for you and His love for us. Will you not help this to fill us with joy? May we not have delight not only in who Christ is, but delight as he has it in fearing you. Our joy will be found in me and all of you are. We would delight to tremble at displeasing you that we might be freed from everything that pulls us this way or that way that we might just seek after you and find our joy and delight in doing so. Help us, God. Help us to cast our eyes upon Jesus. Help us to wonder at him this Christmas season. And Father, in Your great kindness, will You not for Your name's sake bring the loss to Yourself? Perhaps, my God, there is somebody here this morning that well, maybe no one else knows this, but they know this in their heart that they do not belong to You. That they may have played You lip service. They may attend church week after week, but they know that they are not Yours. Will You not work in their lives even now? that they might repent of their sin and come to you. Perhaps there's a guest here visiting with us this morning. Maybe this is the first time they've ever heard these truths about King Jesus. Will you not in your kindness, Father, give them faith to believe that they might profess it in prayer right now, praying, Father, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe He died on the cross for my sins, paid my penalty in full, and three days later rose from the dead and is returning. I give Him everything. I place my faith in Him. Will you not lead someone to utter that prayer of faith, Father, for their eternal gain and for Your great glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.